Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. We hope you had a restful holiday. One of the most enduring tales Americans tell themselves is that America is the land of great economic opportunity, where anyone who wants it can make it into the middle class. Sure, there are some really rich folks and a few poor ones, but overall, this is a country built by and sustained by hardworking, regular folks just pulling down an average salary. No other group of voters gets the attention and commitment of politicians than the middle class. And given that about 70% of Americans think of themselves in this group, well, this pandering makes a lot of sense. I am a product of that middle class. And when I am president, you will be forgotten no more. We will make the code more fair by knocking the toll booth down on the road to middle class. We believe the harder you work, the more money you had to have in your pocket. Building stronger communities and new ladders of opportunity that they can climb into the middle class and beyond. The wealth of our middle class has been ripped from their homes. Middle class is being able to send your child to a park and know they're going to come home safely. Being able to send them to the local public school that you know if they do well, they'll be able to go beyond school. But we also know the path to the middle class has gotten much tougher over the last 20 to 30 years. In 2016, Donald Trump was able to build an effective narrative, one where the great, mostly white, middle class had been hollowed out by elites and immigrants. In the aftermath of that election, reporters scurried around America, telling the stories of disgruntled white men in the heartland who had seen their access to middle class life shut to them. But we also know that these stories weren't telling the whole story of the middle class, how it came to be and how it's been torn apart. That's something Jim Tankersley has discovered over the course of his career, and he writes about it in his book, The Riches of This Land, The Untold True Story of America's Middle Class. Jim grew up in an overwhelmingly white community in Oregon that saw its economic fortunes tumble in the 1990s with the downturn of the logging industry. I grew up in a, a small town in rural Oregon um, in what used to be the timber country. It's now the sort of Pinot Noir country between Portland and, and the Pacific Coast. And in my childhood, you know, I, I had so many friends whose parents uh, worked in or uh, connected to the, the timber industry. You know, my, my best friends uh, in high school's dad had been a log truck driver. And when I was in middle school and high school, I watched that industry basically you know, break and crater in, in Oregon. And what happened was really good middle-class jobs went away. And this pathway for so many of my high school classmates went away too. They had sort of this reasonable expectation of being able to walk off the lawn at McMinnville High School's graduation ceremonies and walk into a good job in the woods or the mills and be able to afford a house and a car and, and a good life for their kids someday. And that was suddenly gone. And I remember wondering, you know, even as a teenager, when is the economy going to start working for, for these kids I went to high school with? And that has sort of animated a lot of the work I've done in my career, both as a political reporter and, and as an economics reporter, which I've done for more than a decade now. And, you know, over time, I've realized it's just a much bigger problem than, you know, the mostly white 
kids I went to school with. It is the problem of the American economy right now, um, that loss of opportunity. Can you talk to us about how you approached talking about the middle class and and race and the underlying challenges there as somebody who is white and, and grew up in a community that was overwhelmingly white? Yeah, I, 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 it's a really great question. And I, I think, you know, for me, um, I'll be do some self-criticism here. I mean, a lot of of what this book ended up looking at was sort of what I see as a f- failure by reporters like myself, in- including myself, uh, especially in the run to the 2016 election, to define the middle class uh, as broadly and as diversely as it actually is. We wrote a ton about distressed white people in the Midwest who really are distressed and really did break hard for Donald Trump, both in 2016 and in 2020. But, but we did not write nearly enough about the distressed black Americans in cities or, or the distressed immigrants uh, across the Southwest. Um, we just didn't give this full picture of a middle class, a working class, or people aspiring to get into the, the middle class who, who are much more diverse. And so, you know, I had talked to many of those uh, sort of forgotten workers, if you will, the forgotten non-white workers um, over the, the course of my career. But it wasn't really until looking back on just how much I wrote about white workers in 2016 that I could start piecing together like, hey, we were giving the country a misleading picture, which which I think is dangerous. I think um, we gave white workers the idea that they were toiling alone in, in this middle class malaise. And worse than that, that the, that the other workers weren't necessarily part of the solution, that they were actually part of the problem. And so it, it allowed, um, I think, uh, this lie that you know immigrants have have bankrupted the American middle class, or that you know black workers are taking jobs from white workers, it allowed those lies to fester and grow, and and they're not true. And and so you know part of writing the book was to set that straight. And 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 in fact, to talk about just how much of the success of the white working class, the white middle class, is wrapped up in the success of the non-white middle class. You write about this, the study that you found online in 2012 about sort of the post-war boom, post-World War II boom in the economy. And what these economists had really come to uh, put together was exactly what you pointed out, that the economy boomed after World War II, not because white people were doing so well, but because everybody was contributing, because women were finally being allowed into the workforce, because Black workers were finally being allowed into the workforce um, and that the potential of these people who previously had been denied access was finally being tapped. I was working for National Journal uh, magazine in D.C. at the time that I discovered that paper. And it was early on when I was writing about economics. So I was trying to do the thing when you're new to a beat where you just read everything. So I would go home at night or I'd sit at my desk during the day between calls from sources and just read as many papers as possible. And and the one that you just mentioned was really dry, had a really dry title, The Allocation of Talent and U.S. Economic Growth. It did not seem like the sort of paper that would change your life. But I was reading it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a revolution. This is a completely different way of thinking about this story that we've all been told about how the economy actually boomed in this golden era after World War II. And the argument was basically that until, you know, the civil rights era, basically, or starting, you know, in the run up from from the actual war and its aftermath, but then cresting in, in the civil rights era, you know, the United States economy had been really 
restricted to basically white men at the top most skilled positions. 95% of all doctors and lawyers in 1960 are, are white men. But through the tearing down of the social and economic barriers that were keeping women and black men and, and others out of those jobs, the economy didn't just sort of create more fairness and opportunity for those workers who'd been shut out for centuries. It actually made the whole economy work better. It's like finally deciding that you could allow left-handed players on your baseball team and suddenly you realize that you're better off when you have left-handed pitchers. It, it was this revelation and it's so intuitive and yet no one had put it together and this was an empirical paper with lots of you know regression analyses and things that economics nerds like. Um, but it, it really sort of changed the way that I, I looked at my job and, um, and it ended up becoming the backbone of the argument in the book. Both in politics reporting and economics reporting, we still continue to be driven by the narrative of the post-World War II era, right? It was a time where everybody got along. We had bipartisanship and Congress worked and everybody had jobs and everybody had cars and beautiful um, suburbs were coming up all across America that were affordable. And you could go to college for $5 and all of this. And yet, at the same time, we know that built into much of the legislation that made these lives possible was discrimination and specifically discrimination against black people, whether it was the GI Bill, whether it was things that were um, put together, legislation put forward during the uh, the New Deal. And so this sort of glamorous post-World War II era, it was never what we it really could have been or should have been. Yes. No, absolutely. It also, it is, it can, this is actually something that I love about America that so many people have a hard time reflecting in our politics now. We have a lot of contradictions in our history. It is both true that the post-World War II era was a really great time, the best time in our history, or I would argue almost in human history, for the growth of a robust middle class. And also true that um, it was so much harder to get into that middle class if you were black so much harder to get into that middle class if you were an immigrant. And um, we made it easier. We have not made it as easy as it is uh, for a white person, nowhere close, but we made it a little bit easier. And that little bit easier absolutely changed the, the face of the economy. It truly was this secret engine of, of our growth. And when you think about it, when you think about how hard fought those victories were and how tumultuous that era was of civil rights, how, how difficult it was um, in American politics for black Americans to win even basic entry to the educational system and um, to the employment, you know, to the business world. Uh, you can look back at that and go, wow, we could have made it so much better. I mean, this could have been, it's the high watermark, but it could have been so much higher if we just like dispensed with a lot of the social um difficulty that we had. I mean, if white people had just gotten with uh, the idea much earlier on that equality would be great for everyone, um, but they didn't. And we, you know, we're still fighting fights about that today. It seems what also made the white working class myth possible is the fact that both parties bought into it, right? N neither party was really pushing to make these things less discriminatory. And it wasn't until the Democratic Party became the party of civil rights that we really saw this focus on the white working class as somehow distinct. Is that fair? How, how would you how would you look at that? 
I mean, I just think there was not much focus at all on the black working class um, uh, for most of American history. I mean, you know, th- there there were big fights early, you know, in America, obviously, to, to end slavery, the biggest, the biggest fight of all. Um, and then, you know, to expand educational access, the turn of the century, coming into the 20th century, a, a lot of states, you know, made it very, very difficult still to educate black children. Um, even just, you know, up through high school, that, that was a, that was a breakthrough in the early, early 20th century. And then colleges, of course, took, took a lot more to desegregate them. And, um, I, I think it's just been such an entrenched, ingrained way of, um, governing America. I mean, you, it is easy as, as, you know, I argued this in the book, but I I think it's pretty non-controversial. It's really easy to run on platforms of, um, I'm going to make your life a little bit better than this other, you know, group, which, by the way, is holding you back. I mean, I think, you know, politicians from both parties over the course of several centuries have had real success in telling one group of distressed workers that its problems were another group of distressed workers. Well, just sort of leaving out the fact that the, you know, white men who were in charge of the country were the ones benefiting from all that squabbling between workers, you know, in the middle of the bottom. And um, and so, yeah, I think that, that that is why it wasn't a big issue until the civil rights era is that is that it. it it was truly a country that was still viewing the economy through a very white male lens. So let's talk about the 2020 election for a minute in in the context of all of this, because, um, you know, we're still sort of sifting through the results and the data. But one narrative that's come out of the 2020 election is that um, the Republican Party under Trump has sort of become what we thought at first was just the white working class party. But then some success that he found in 2020 among Latino voters, especially those in smaller town or rural communities, suggests that, you know, maybe there is a pathway here for Republicans to be the working class party that goes beyond just white folks. What did you see? Um, I am still, I'm fascinated by this result of the election. Um, I think we're still sort of learning exactly what forces um, uh, allowed the president to overperform from 2016 with um, Latino voters. Uh, if it's if it ends up being the economy, I, I do think that's a real uh, lesson for Republicans that they might be able to make um, an economy-themed pitch to the working class. I mean, but I also would caution that you know they are nowhere close to a working class party yet. Their coalition is, you know, basically excludes most black working class voters, and that they uh, and they still have a lot of you know higher income white voters as as part of this. Um, but it's, that's true. The Democrats too. They they are not really a working class party either. Um, and I think I think they're. If we, if you know, the close read of the data ends up showing us that this swing among Latino voters is is really linked to economic performance, I think that should give both parties a real incentive to run the economy as hot as possible um, when they have levers of power in order to make the case to vote to those voters. See, we delivered for you. You should reward us. You should join this. Like we care about um, running an economy that's going to to lift your income and get you a better job more than we care about running an economy that has high stock prices or, you know, big dividend payments to, to shareholders. Um, and I think that there is both a, a rhetorical case that both parties can make on that and also a policy case. And there are lessons for both parties here. But to me, it's uh, you know, obviously a, an election full of fascinating lessons. It, it is the one I am most interested in because 
it could show some real economic solidarity across um, more that cuts more across uh, uh, racial and ethnic lines than we have seen in previous you know recent cycles. Jim, do you consider Donald Trump to be a populist? I think Donald Trump is a populist politician. I believe his rhetoric is populist. I believe some of his policies are populist. I, I think he also um, he he is sort of a. a you know, he's a populist in the sense that he identifies villains and and aggressively and relentlessly tells his supporters that those villains, those elite villains, have made life worse for them. And um, and he did. You know, I, I think in particular his trade policies were at least rhetorically an attempt to deliver populist uh, results. Um, I don't think his tax policies are populist. I think he's a he had a very you know, mainstream Reagan-esque Republican trickle-down uh, tax policy um, that, and I think he could have, one of the interesting counterfactuals of the Trump era, his tax cuts ended up being not very popular. He was very popular on the economy, even though a lot of his economic policies were not very popular. His tax cuts were... Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the thing that I was trying to get at too, Jim, which is his rhetoric certainly populist, but even on trade, it, yes, there were the tariffs on China, but you know, he came in as a candidate saying he was literally going to blow them up, like NAFTA was going to be gone. And other, you know, th th this idea that he was going to come in and really be this working class fighter that globalism is dead, and we're going to bring all these jobs back. And I'm going to put big penalties on all of these corporations that are outsourcing. But he never really delivered on any of that. And instead, I mean, I think the people who again, the people who are doing really well right now and continue to do well are the people that have always done really well and who have a nice big stock portfolio. Yeah. I mean, there's no evidence whatsoever that Trump delivered, you know, for those distressed manufacturing communities, the the like that were losing ground in the Midwest um, in terms of like bringing jobs. He promised all sorts of high in the sky populist things, millions of jobs coming back from China, um, millions of jobs coming back from Mexico, this like complete rebuilding of the manufacturing base. Whereas uh, under Trump, manufacturing hit the lowest share of the, of the US job uh, economy in basically modern statistics. Um, he, he did not bring anywhere close to that. He barely brought any jobs back at all. Let's, let's be really honest about what the reshoring numbers show. What he did do, though, which he deserves some credit for, is run the economy hot enough that people at the bottom uh, and in the middle did see income gains in 2018 and 2019. Now, 2020 kind of wiped a lot of that out. But that's that's a huge part of that is because he inherited an economy with a very low unemployment rate, and he just kept pouring gas on it. So I think he gets credit for continuing to pour gas on it. But it's like that is not a function of the most populous parts of his plan. And and most economists you talk to would say that the trade war was a net negative on on, you know, populist outcomes like manufacturing jobs and reshoring, to to be honest. And then about the Democratic Party and, and you know, you talk about this, too. We have this uh, all these changes that have happened since 1978 and uh globalization and of course education being a key element in all of this right that uh the people who have the highest level of education are doing the best in this country economically and it's only the gap is only getting wider the democratic party now is this combination of sort of traditional labor working class and african-american latino uh voters but also increasingly wealthy white 
formerly Republican, tax-sensitive voters. How does the Democratic Party go forward, given that it has at its, you know, part of its coalition, a group of, of folks that are in now the elite class? And the Democratic Party has some choices to make, too. Um, <laughs> because I'm a tax policy reporter, I'm going to pick on one of them. But, you know, there is this this benefit that like one of the main tax policies Democrats have had success railing against is Trump's tax plan limited the state and local tax deduction, which basically is a thing that helps high end taxpayers in blue states. Um, if you if you pay a lot of property taxes and income taxes in New York or California, you probably took big advantage of the salt deduction in your on your tax forms. Um, that is a thing that really just helps higher end people. I mean, really like top 5% people will get most of the benefits. Um, if the Democrats take power, do they try to reverse that? I mean, that's, that is a thing that would benefit a lot of their new voters in that sort of anti-Trump coalition that came and helped them deliver the White House. But it doesn't do anything for the vast majority of voters who have been with them all along and risks making them look like that they care more about the, the rich guys than everybody else. So I think that, the, that they're a party that's going to have to make choices like that. Um, and I think, you know, Joe Biden is going to have a, tr a trickier time holding that coalition together than um, uh, maybe Democrats thought going into this election when they thought that coalition was bigger than it turned out to be on election day. They can make choices, though, in policy on who to prioritize, especially if they have to cut deals with Republicans. And they can show, you know, working class voters whether they uh, are, are going to first and foremost take care of them or whether they're going to take care of the sort of, you know, higher end, better educated folks. You know, you you wrote about middle class being hollowed out and then simultaneously voters becoming just sort of numb to all of the politicians and their promises of renewal. And again, we hear it on the trail. As you pointed out, Joe Biden, I'm Scranton Joe and Donald Trump, I'm going to bring your jobs back from China. And year after year, these promises are made and they're not kept and the disillusionment only grows. I mean, at what point do the do political leaders need to say either one, these old jobs aren't coming back and here's what I think a new economy is or to just acknowledge like, I don't know, what, what, what do they need to actually say <laughs> to, to be really truthful? Are, are they just promoting these platitudes because they know that if they said what was really happening or how hard it's really going to be, there's no way they could win an election. My recipe for them is not great politics. I mean, I, I think that, that political leaders of both parties should be telling Americans that, um, you know, especially American workers, that they have more in common than they have uh, that divides them and that, in fact, workers need to band together to, to sort of demand a better middle class and that, that it's not that, you know, people who don't look like you are a threat to people like you. It's it's the opposite. You you your fate is is intertwined. That's difficult. It's a difficult message to make. To be super clear, um, it's much easier to say, you know, it's the Chinese or the immigrants or whoever who are stealing your jobs. But I do think they can be honest with America about the benefits of um, helping people do what they're best at. I, and I think that there actually is some really good politics with that, particularly with women. 
um, women understand how much harder it is for them to succeed in the labor market in the United States than it is for comparably educated men. It just is. And, and the polling shows us and, you know, so many conversations that I have with, with, um, with uh, women across the country, you know, recognize this. And I think recognizing it and addressing it is good politics and whichever party wants to pursue that. And you can pursue that in a bunch of different ways, depending on your economic philosophy. Um, but I, I think just making that clear that, hey, you know, um, we are going to be a party that open, that finally equalizes that opportunity is a winning message and, um, and something that, that uh, should not be that controversial, although I, of course, know that it is. Jim Tankersley is a tax and economics reporter at The New York Times. He's also the author of The Riches of This Land, The Untold True Story of America's Middle Class. That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Our associate producers are Patricia Jacob and Meg Dalton. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Debbie Daughtry is our board op. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. And of course, you can call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. <laughs>